This morning we will begin in Exodus chapter 24, starting in verse 15 and going through Exodus 25, verse 9. And um, this is the part of the Bible. I don't know if you have your... uh, Bible reading plan that takes you all the way through the Bible, or at least that's the plan, and then you drop off when you get to Leviticus. This tends to happen with people, Um, unless you got some way of making it through there. Well, for me, I always thought making it to Leviticus was pretty good, because this right here is about the point I would drop off every time I'd try it again. You get to uh, the middle Exodus, you get to uh, chapter, chapter 25, and it starts describing... How the um, how the tabernacle is to be put together, and all the furniture that's to be put in the tabernacle, and as it's all described, it reminded me. It, it's always reminded me of a joke that I used to tell my sister when I was a child. That was not funny, which was why I thought it was so funny. The whole point of it was just to drive her crazy, and it was the golden joke. And it was one that I got from a joke book, and it was like four pages long, and you'd read the whole thing out, and it just described everything as it's the golden uh, this and the golden that. You know, these people who had a... I will tell an abbreviated version. The three weary travelers who got in a car trouble in the middle of the night, and they go up to this house, and they ring the golden doorbell, and they go in the golden door, and they go... And anyway, the whole thing describes everything in the house. Golden this, golden that, golden this, golden that all the way through the rest of the evening and the night, and they come down for breakfast in the morning, and the owner of the house asks them what they want for breakfast, and two say cornflakes, one says eggs, and then, so then you say, the moral of the story is, two out of three people prefer cornflakes over eggs for breakfast. And that's the joke. But the whole time through, I know, it's horrible. The whole time through, you're expecting it to have something to do with all this golden, 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 and then it just doesn't seem to have that. And, uh, and so as a... As a middle school student, I loved telling this to my freshman in high school uh, sister who did not enjoy this joke. Not the first time, nor the second time, nor the third time. And yes, I would follow her around reading it from the joke book. No, 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 listen to it, listen to it. She did not like it. Um, and that's always kind of how I felt when I would get to this part of, of Exodus and it starts describing, and then there's this in the tabernacle, and you're going to make it out of this kind of thing, and then there's the golden this and the golden. I'm like, ah, I knew it, it's the same thing. And this is just going to be a really long, drawn out, boring thing that leads to nothing. And so that's sort of where I would drop off in all that description. However, I would encourage you not to do so. <laughs> Don't drop off here. Uh, because though it may sound like it's going nowhere, it's actually going somewhere vitally important. So, with that in mind, uh, we'll begin reading Exodus 24 and 25. We're not even going to get into all the description here, but um, maybe if you're in your Bible reading plan and you get to there, you'll keep going now. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Every part of it being useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness Lord, we ask that as we hear your word read and proclaimed today that, God, that we would hear, hear what you're saying to us today. That we would know better who you are. The work that you have done uh, in the past, what you have accomplished through Jesus, and what we have yet in store for us. Not because of our goodness, but because of your goodness. God, we thank you 
for your amazing love and care. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Exodus 24, starting in verse 15, says, When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then you get the next several chapters of descriptions of, uh, of those items. Which, maybe after today, you'll be inspired to go read those sections just by themselves. <clears throat> Not a lot of plot, but a lot of good description. Then moving on, John chapter 10, our gospel reading for today. John 10, starting in verse 7 and going through verse 18. Jesus, talking with his disciples, says, Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep." I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And then turning to our sermon text for today, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. And you'll see why we began where we did in Exodus. The writer's been talking about how Jesus is the mediator of a new and better covenant. And he's contrasting it with the covenant that God made with his people of Israel after he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And he said, okay, now you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Here's the way this is going to work. And so you have the Ten Commandments. 
among other things. And you have this detailed prescription for the way in which to approach God. And that is one of the things uh, that we talked about last week, is how if you were going to... um, if you were going to be visiting somebody that was really important, if you were going to go uh, visit the president or the pope or the queen, I don't know, uh, you would want to make sure that you knew the proper protocol, how to approach them. You wouldn't approach them the same way that you might approach your own sibling or something. It's not that casual of a, of a relationship. And so there are sort of things you have to do. You'd want to know what that's like. Similarly, if you were even going to go to uh, a, fancy, a fancy restaurant where jacket and tie are required, you, don't want to, you wouldn't want to get there and you're in you know, your jeans with the holes in them and your ratted up t-shirt. And what, what do you mean I can't get in? You'd want to know in advance so that you had on what you needed to have on. Well, when it comes to approaching God, there are a couple of ways that people get it uh, completely wrong. And we want to clarify some of that as we approach God together. Here's, here are some of the misunderstandings. One is that, uh, well, one misunderstanding is there is no God at all. Hopefully we're past that. Uh, another is that there is a God, but he's completely impersonal. And that there is no sense in talking about how to approach God because he's unapproachable. You cannot approach him, end of story. But then if you go to the other extreme, it is that, well... He's absolutely personal. In fact, he's very close. And there's, uh, I don't see what the reason is for all the, uh, the issue for how to approach God. Because, yeah, you just go straight to him and that's no big deal. That's, why would we not be able to approach him? God is everywhere. He is uh, within all of us. And it's, approaching him is no different than approaching uh, your brother or sister, etc. However, the Bible talks about God in... Um, in terms of his, yes, being a personal God, but also being holy, being set apart from everything else. And in fact, he set up a way that we can approach him because ever since the Garden of Eden, we have not been able to just be with God in the same way that Adam and Eve were then. That something has happened, that sin has broken down that relationship, and we can't just go to him the same way. Something has to be fixed. The relationship has to be repaired. And so, you read in Exodus, God sets up this system. He says, here's this covenant that I'm making with you, and here is how you are to approach me. And so he gives... um, We'll see if this works. So he gives a description of what the tabernacle is to be like. There it is. You have a picture of this in your bulletin. It's a little small and in black and white. We'll put it up there. They say a picture is worth a thousand words, so maybe this sermon will be a thousand words shorter. Who knows? Um, I don't have to describe the whole thing to you. But this was, this was the setup. Now, a couple of years ago, we took our youth group 
to uh, San Angelo, there was a traveling uh, model of the tabernacle that was coming through. And so we actually got to walk through it, and it was fascinating. And so when we look at this, we actually have an idea of what that is like, size and scale. In my mind, it had always been huge. Of course, it would be huge, right? It's really not that big. If you look at this scale, this is an American football field, which we're all familiar with that size. And then this is the size, by comparison, of the court of the tabernacle. This was the place of worship for all of the people of Israel as they moved around through the desert. Um, And even once they were in the promised land for a time until the temple was built. What you'll see here is right here is the the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, in which is the Ark of the Covenant. And we'll hear about that in a little second. Then there's a curtain that separates it from everybody. Then in here, there's another curtain that separates from everybody. This is where the priests can go on a daily basis. Only one priest can go in here once a year. But this area is where the priests get to go uh, regularly. There's a lampstand, a table where they have bread, and then here is the uh, altar of incense that was to be constantly burning incense as a symbol of the prayers of God's people going up to him. Outside of that, you have another court where more people could go, and this is um, a giant dish of water that was to be used for uh, washing, symbolically purifying. And then here is uh, the altar where sacrifices were made. And um, so hopefully you got kind of that all in mind as we talk through this. And this is the, the one entrance to the whole, the whole thing. Okay, Hebrews 9. Now the first, yes, in case you're at this point thinking, why do we need to know this? This has nothing to do with us. We don't use a tabernacle anymore. Wait for it. Okay. It says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up in its first room with a lampstand and a table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. We'll pause right there. So it begins by giving a description of all this. If you were very uh, 
sharp and paying attention, you may have noticed that it says the altar of incense. It seems to say that it's behind this curtain when actually it's in front of it. it it's just implying that they all kind of go together as a unit, not that it's actually behind the curtain. If you didn't catch that, let it go. Okay. But it gives a description of, of all of this and what's going on. Why is it giving this description? Because for the people of Israel, the people that he's writing to, this is what they had known not only as the way to approach God, but as the God-prescribed way to approach God. In other words, this is not a matter of people sitting around going, I don't know, what do you think? How do we, how do we come to God? Can we come to God? But this is a part of their history collectively of God has said, if you are to approach me, the holy and righteous God, it can only be done this way. And yet, as it just said, even though they've continued to do these things, they've continued to follow these practices, there are a couple problems with it. You notice the problems? One is it has to be done over and over again. Another is that the priest who's going in with the blood of the animals that have been killed for the sins of the people, he's got to do it for himself and for the people because even he can't go in on his own. He has sins that need to be forgiven as well. And then third, said even though we're doing everything like we're supposed to, we've still found that there's a problem in that it does not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper we still are separate from God. At the end of the day, the priest comes back out, the people are still on the outside. At the end of the day, people have gone through the process of how to approach God, and yet they're still separated. And they're still separated because their sin still has not been taken care of. And they know it. And they know it deep down that everything that they're doing, all this other stuff that's going on, is only kind of an outside, um, kind of an outside in. And what they need is an inside out. So everything they're doing has to do with what's going on on the outside of their bodies, and they are having um, you splash water on, sprinkle blood on, depending on uh, the occasion, depending on what you eat or drink. But all of it is unable to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. And he says that the whole reason that this is the case is because all of this, all of this, and even as you go through all the descriptions that I found so boring before I understood what they were about, um, all of it was there because God was not just saying, this is how to approach me, period. But he's saying, this is how to approach me for now, And as you do this, it will point towards something that's coming later. And what's coming later for them is what has already come for us. And that's where we need to hang on through all this so that we see um, how much better it is now and why this was here in the first place. So with those problems in mind, he continues. Verse 11. It says, but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Did you hear that? Did you hear the difference? The incredible contrast and yet the way that all this had been pointing straight to Jesus from the beginning? It said Jesus did not go into this tabernacle or even to the temple that came later. He didn't go in there and offer a sacrifice and then come back out and say, well, guess what, everybody? It's all been taken care of now. But instead, he entered a different tabernacle. He entered the most holy place. This was the symbol of where God would meet with his people. But Jesus entered into the very presence of God once for all because the sacrifice that would take care of all sin had finally been made. Jesus entered the presence of God as the priest for the people, the representative of all of us. But he also entered because he himself was the sacrifice. No other priest did that. No other priest could do that. That's why they had to keep being repeated. That's why it was never able to do the job, so to speak. But Jesus offered himself as the unblemished lamb as the perfect sacrifice. And because he, was, because he did that, he was able to, and because he did, he enters into the presence of God as our priest and as the sacrifice made once for all. You know, we gather around this table in a few minutes. Uh, there's been a misunderstanding there as well by some, which uh, they call the table an altar and see this as a place of Christ being continually sacrificed. I understand how that understanding has come about, but I think it's clearly a misunderstanding, especially as you read through Hebrews, which says this is something that happened once for all. It is a done deal. Jesus has died and taken care of the problem of sin, and all we have to do is trust in that. And so when we gather around the table, we remember what it is that he did, We trust in that, and we celebrate the fellowship and the communion we have with each other and with God because of what Jesus has done as the sacrifice and as our high priest, making way, uh, the way open to God himself. And so it says, uh, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Only one person a year could go into the most holy place, could go into the very presence of God on behalf of the people. And there they could, um, they could serve the living God for a time. What the author of Hebrews is saying is, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are all able to have our consciences clean, not something that's an external thing, 
but something that happens on the inside where we can now approach God directly through Jesus and may serve the living God all the time in all that we're doing. Now, you may have noticed uh, that we, we tend to pray and at the end of our prayer say, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you noticed that? Do you know that we don't do that because it's like a magic phrase that, that God is just waiting to hear that and is, you're praying along and he's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And then you say, Jesus' name, amen. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll listen to that one. No, it's not like he's screening his phone calls. <laughs> just waiting for the magic word of Jesus' name. No, the reason we pray in Jesus' name is not so that God knows where we're coming from. He knows where we're coming from. It's so we are constantly reminded the only reason that I have access to pray to God, the only way that I can call him my father, the only way that I can pray directly to him is because of Jesus. It is in Jesus that we are able to pray to God because of what he has done for us. That is how we are able to have our consciences cleansed. That is how we are able to approach God. That is how we are able to serve God. Now... This whole setup is complicated. It's complicated. Jesus, though, has fulfilled all of this. We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to do any of that anymore. But that doesn't mean that we have no need to approach God. Of course we do. And we approach Him through confession of sins. We approach Him through Uh, prayer and praise and thanksgiving and asking that he would continue to supply our needs. He would continue to lead and guide and direct us in everything. Jesus didn't do away with this so that we would have no need to approach God. He did away with this. He fulfilled all of this so that we could come directly into the presence of God. So, what are we doing with that? Is it something that we have grown up with that has been so that we're so used to and so accustomed to that it just almost doesn't seem to matter anymore? Well, if, yeah, of course we've got access to God. Yeah, kind of like uh, if you live if you live in a city, you have access to stores, and then you move somewhere like this, and you go, well, maybe that's something I should have appreciated more. <laughs> the reason we have access to God is not because we deserve it. It's not because we have done anything to have access to God. It's because he saw the need that we have. That we were the ones that caused the separation. But he has done what it takes to bring us back. The more, the more you meditate on this, the more you think about what this means for God to have done this, the love that he has for people who don't deserve it. The better news this is. So if this is something where you've kind of grown accustomed to, yeah, I've heard that before, sure, 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 but you're not doing anything with it, think about it. Think about it more. What does it mean to have access to God all day, every day, because of what Jesus has done? And what kind of change does that mean on the inside for you? And if you know people who don't understand how good of news this is, let them know. 
tell the story. You may not have to go through all this, <laughs> but it may be helpful. One other thing to point out. That was always to be on the east. Is that important? I think so. Because when the people, when Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden, they went out towards the east, and the way was blocked. They could not come back in. And the tabernacle was made where there was only one door. It was on the east, symbolizing the way back to the presence of God that was lost through Eden, through Adam and Eve. But then Jesus comes along and says, I am the gate. I am the door. I am the way back. And hopefully today we've seen, at least in part, how through his death on the cross for our sins, he has provided that way back. May we all be those who make the most of what he has given us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.